0: Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you very much for joining us. Today, we speak to someone who's got a diverse background in communications and I know you're going to really enjoy these conversations because he's someone who draws from so many different experiences and his job today is to represent the interests of a major international NGO on a daily basis. And his name is Osama Saeed Bhuta. Osama started his career as an organiser in the Stop the Iraq War and as part of that movement. He was an advisor but a junior member of the team that really went about building up that support in the UK for the Stop the War movement. From there he moved into politics where he worked with the Scottish Nationalist Party in opposition and learnt some great lessons in the way that you communicate effectively from opposition in politics. From there, he then went on to work in Al Jazeera, and he joined Al Jazeera at the time of the Arab Spring uprising, and he was also involved in the global campaign to release the Al Jazeera journalists who were imprisoned in Egypt, which included the Australian Peter Gresta. But today, Osama Saeed Buta is the Director of Communications at the International Secretariat for Amnesty International, and he joins me now from London. So, Osama, welcome to In Transition. Hi there. Thanks for that introduction. Okay, Osama, let's sort of start at the beginning, which is probably a pretty good place to start. When when was it that you found your interest in communication, and and you you were identified or you yourself identified uh, a skill or a or a passion that was was going to lead you towards the career that you've had?
1: I think it was the you know post nine eleven period, and uh, you you know your um, keen listeners will have noted that, you know, my, my name, I'm from a Muslim background. Um, I'm called Osama, which has had its uh, challenges um, as well in, in, in life. Um, but, you know, I, I was at that time a student and I was, you know, thrust into the, the limelight. I don't know why, but I was, you know, my, my number was given to some BBC producers at the time um, and I ended up, you know, coming on television and radio um, you know, trying to make sense of the world at that time. You know, post the September Eleventh attacks and, and lead up to the Iraq War. Um, and <clears throat> at the time of the Iraq War, I was um, a volunteer organizer and, and press officer for for the Stop the War movement. Um, and you know, it was an incredibly vibrant movement. We, we literally got millions of people onto the streets in, in historic scenes um, in in the UK and. and uh, I know that was replicated around the world as well. Uh, but it was a chastening lesson because, um, we, you know, while we, we had this kind of euphoria of having, you know, built a movement, um, the likes of which the, the country had never seen uh, responding to a massive global challenge, but ultimately we weren't successful despite <clears throat> despite everything. Um, and that was a chastening lesson in politics, but also in, in positioning and, and messaging um, and, and in communications. And, you know, I was determined to to learn more about uh this area of, of of work and you know we were up against a formidable opponent at the time tony blair who was you know very good at putting his message forward and, and ultimately he was more successful than us at the time uh, but obviously uh, history has uh, shown things to be different
0: so what worked for you at that that point in time and what was your actual training or your skills base uh when you took on that leadership role within the Stop the War movement?
1: Um, I, well, I wasn't a leader. I was, I was, I was a, one of the, the press officers, um, you know, I was, I was one of the young Turks. Uh, but I was I was in, in the midst of everything, you know. You were dealing with with um, some of the biggest journalists um, in the country at the time. Um, and it, it was self-taught. I mean, they, you know, the, none, none of us were, were richly experienced. We didn't have an Alistair Campbell amongst us or anything like that. Um, so we were learning it. So you you... At that time, you know you're young and, and enthusiastic. You're watching the news, seeing how other people do it, um, and you know I always say that you know the best best experience that any young person can can get is is not learning it. I'm, I'm you know often suspicious of young people who have got public relations degrees and, and so on because I, I don't think you can be taught what we what we know. Um, you know, it's, it, it comes through experience.
0: And what did you learn in those earliest days about? Moving people about gaining their attention and then ultimately moving them from attention to action, it was different then
1: um, at that time. things were far more command and control uh, so when you looked at the the operation of of the British government at the time and and the American administration. You know they were able to put forward uh, a singular argument, and as much as we would try, uh, our our game plan at the time was just try and get as much coverage as possible, try and get our argument across. And this is pre social media. I think if if that was happening now, there would be a completely different tenor because ultimately what we achieved were certain peaks at the time of major demonstrations on the eve of war. Um, what you wanted was was those big demos to 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 cut through, but in between times there was very little happening, and and now we we live in a world where people's voices can be heard um, every day of the year, and and that very much has
0: changed. And in. In terms of that development from, from Stop the War around that Iraq War period of time, what, what did you move on to next? Because I know that you, further down the track you were involved with Al Jazeera, but post the, the Iraq War or past your, post your involvement with the Iraq War, where did you take your your knowledge and skills then?
1: So my, my first proper job was with um, the Scottish, Scottish National Party and, and a lot of that involved out with the Iraq War um, Work because the the SNP, um, which uh, for those not aware of UK politics, and I'd imagine that many of your listeners aren't, the SNP um, are the party of Scottish independence. Um, so at that time they were they were in opposition, um, but very much I was attracted by the argument that um, you know Scotland as a country was. Um, against the the war um and there was a national sovereignty argument at the time that said that you know that sensibility uh, should have expression in in the will of the country um we shouldn't be dragged into a war against uh, our wishes which is what happened uh, so i was attracted to that I was, I was invited to to work for the snp by <clears throat> um alex Salmond, uh who, who later went on to become the first minister of scotland and um the the figurehead behind the the push for the independence referendum in 2014.
0: And what was your role there? Was it strictly in communications again?
1: Yeah, it as it was press, um, you know, advising on strategy. It was, you know, it's, it's politics, so it's um, it's a little bit of everything. Um, and we were in opposition at the time, so there was a lot of scrapping. And it was a great place to learn, um, learn to trade, um, because you know, again, we were. Very much backs to the wall, you know, trying to get as much attention for, for our arguments as possible, and we were, at that time largely ignored by uh, by the mainstream press. So you always had to to be innovative and um, and uh, try and stand out in in what you're saying. Um, so it was, it was a great place to to start my career.
0: Now, there things that you learnt there, given that the you know, the context of communication and the landscape and the channels and the ability to create and distribute content has changed so dramatically. But are there any sort of essential truths that you discovered in this early part of your career that hold true to today? Um, yes, uh, but at the same time, I would say,
1: you know, my, my career has developed in, in, in different ways as well. Um, so I have far more of a differentiated um, um, output now. Um, so that's, uh, when I began my career, I, I started off as, as as a press guy, um, you know, dealing with journalists, doing you know, creating press copy and and, and trying to get coverage for it. Um, whereas now, and, and I think this possibly is common for a lot of the PR industry as well. You you know, you're trying to make. Um, you know, big vision arguments about you know who you are and what you believe and 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 why anyone should should care. Um, so it's it's different um, what I do now compared to to how I started off. But I think most people would, would say that.
0: Indeed, but that th- I think that point about belief is a is an interesting one. And how is it that you go about? Uh, establishing belief in an audience uh, and belief in such a way that it creates uh, action or, or uh, commitment of some sort that is going to help you to achieve your particular objectives?
1: Um, <laughs> that's a million-dollar question. And, and in, in, in my current job at Amnesty, you know, we, we, we grapple with that a lot, um, particularly when... Um, on on our side of politics, I think generally we're we're bad at um, really grappling with those type of big ideas. Um, you know, we like to deal with facts, and we think that because we have um, you know the the right arguments, we've researched issues thoroughly, um, that that somehow is going to to bring people around to our, our way of thinking. Um, whereas the You know, the the other side of of what we believe, say, at Amnesty, are are, are better at putting compelling values-laden arguments forward. Um, And a lot of NGOs probably um, suffer from this, but as an industry probably we are getting
0: better at grappling with it. And why is it that you've lagged? the other side, perhaps, if I might express it that way, in being able to build more emotive, more compelling, more effective uh, content to support your argument,
1: because we 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 end up feeling that we need to research the heck out of everything. Um, that you know we um, we've got to be very careful. So, so take at the moment, you know, that what's what's burning in 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 America with. Um, Racial divisions, you know. So we're 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 dealing a lot with that through through our office um, in the U.S. as well. Um, and you know, the the other sides make very um, emotionally laden arguments about what America is, um, you know, what they believe the history of the country was, and therefore what the the future of the country should be. Um, and quite often, what I find with with colleagues on the on the anti-racist side is that. You know, they're trying to make more compelling arguments about the the economy of the country and how it's benefited from migration and, um, you know, how diverse societies do better and, and so on. And, you know, guess what? Um, you know, when, when you're trying to get into people's hearts, um, that kind of fact-based approach, which has historically been the the approach of, of NGOs um, is is less successful, and at the moment is being you know we, we are being eaten for breakfast as as a movement.
0: <laughs> and do you, do you feel that that's still the case at the moment that you are ineffectively competing uh, with the other side, and therefore not winning what you would hope to be your share of the hearts and minds of of communities around the world? I think we're getting better at it.
1: Um, you know, I, when when I look across. Um, you know, colleagues from across the NGO sector. I'm, I'm seeing people who are starting to look far more carefully at uh, how they present arguments uh, and how we win arguments. Um, you know, the last year in particular has been been chastening, um, not just in, in the US, but we we look around the world. Um, you got you got the rise of of far right. Um, you know, authoritarian. Popular regimes, you know, who have who have won elections or come close to winning elections across Europe, um, in in Turkey, in India, in, in the Philippines, um, you know, they they profess a complete disregard for for human rights, um, and you know we're we're getting better at it, but I think it's going to take um, a year or two before we're we're really at the races in the same kind of way.
0: What about the power of the image? And I, I think you know the the image, certainly of the refugee crisis, um, that sticks in my mind is obviously of the of of the child being carried in the arms uh, from the beach, and the impact that that has, and 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 the power of the image to really say everything without a without anything else needing to be said. How how do you treat s- images such as that which are, are so powerful and, and so compelling?
1: Well, we, we've, we've had to move away from that um, because I, I agree with you the, the images are compelling. Um, and from a news perspective, you know, say the, 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 the most famous image of all is probably that of uh, Aylan Kurdi, the, the three-year-old boy who was washed up on, on the beaches of Europe. Um, it, it grabs people's attentions, but what we... Um, have found is that it's also incredibly disempowering um, because you know when when people see you know groups large numbers of, of refugees, it's it's actually quite frightening to to many members of the public. And when we're trying to galvanise solutions, um, those images don't represent solutions. They they represent. The problem, yeah, right. Um, so, so what we've been doing far more of is showing that, showing the pictures of of you know, people in action. You know, so so you know, refugees have come to, um, to to richer countries throughout history. Mm. Um, this is nothing new. You know, we 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 celebrate um, the Second World War. You know, the Second World War created. Um, thousands upon thousands of, of refugees. And, and we like to think we we, we rose to the occasion um, at, at that time. Um, there's a lot of mythology around that, but but sometimes you, you you grab that mythology and run with it. And, you know, there are fantastic examples, for example, in Canada where, you know, the, the government's had a scheme where, where individuals can sponsor people uh, to, you know, individuals can sponsor refugees to, to come to Canada. And, and 20,000 Refugees have come to Canada for, for many, many years uh, per year. Um, so solutions like that we've been focusing in. you know, the, the the stories of integration, the stories of refugees that have gone to countries like the UK, uh, France and Germany and, and the US, made new lives, settled in, contributed to society. And to try and normalise that process is, is far more useful than solely focusing on the camps, which is often seductive from from a news perspective, um, but isn't necessarily taking the the debate or or the argument forward.
0: So perhaps if we might just take a a step back and peer behind the curtain of the, uh, you know, the role of the Director of uh, Communications at Amnesty International, what sort of, you know, Perhaps just describe for us the role that you play and and the team that you have, uh, working for you there, and and how you go about your daily work of of telling the story of Amnesty International.
1: So I I um I'm the director of communications at um, the International Secretariat. Uh, so the Secretariat is <clears throat> brought about by our seventy or so national offices around the world. We call them. Sections. So we've got a, you know, one of our oldest and most successful is uh, sections as in in Australia. Um, so they look to us as their international secretariat to provide them content and um, campaigns for, for them to use in market. Um, we also operate in countries where we don't have offices. Um, so places where we're relatively new, and there are a lot of them, say in in. South Asia and and the Middle East and and in Latin America. Uh, And the team I oversee um, includes uh, news and media, um, digital engagement, video uh, uh, design, brand and, and publishing.
0: And how many people would you have working with you at your central team?
1: So in communications at Amnesty, we've got about 55 um, and just to complicate things further, the, the secretariat itself is, is distributed. So it used to be the secretariat was, was solely based in London. We now have um, 10 global hubs um, across all regions, and they, they were established in, in the last few years, just recognising the, the multi-nature of, of the world now. Um, so that communications
0: team is, is distributed across all of those offices. And is there such a thing as a, a typical day for you in the way that you you go about your task? Um, gosh, not really. Um, every day is different.
1: You know, sometimes we're we're on the front foot. You know, we've we've got a um, you know exclusive piece of content that that one of our brilliant researchers around the world has got from from. Somewhere where no one else is, um, say in South Sudan or or, or Yemen or or somewhere like that, where we're trying to get that out to the public or or through the media. Uh, Sometimes we're reacting to 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 what's going on, Um, and it's incredibly diverse. You know, there's there's just things happening around the world all the time um, that we're having to be nimble um, towards, Um, and at the same time, we're very mindful of of our overall. Organizational objectives. So, you know, we want to help create change rather than simply highlight uh, problems, which probably, you know, it would be fair to to accuse Amnesty of having done in the past. Um, um, And we want to grow as a movement. So we're we're about uh, a seven million strong movement at the moment, about seven million supporters, and we want to grow that to um, to twenty
0: five million in the next three or four years. And how are you going to do that um, from a, a content point of view and from a communication point of view?
1: Well, we want to inspire people. Um, so that's what I was alluding to, yeah. to, to a moment ago. Um, yeah. That when 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 you solely present problems and, and the you know the pictures of, of of refugees in camps or on boats is 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 one of them. Then you know that you know that isn't necessarily the most inspiring thing. So, um, you know, we, we we now want to to show um, people doing things, you know, people making, you know, really quite seismic changes in their countries through small ways. You know, it could be writing a letter, it could be organising a protest, it could be lobbying your politicians. Uh, but there's brilliant work happening around the world and it usually goes way under the radar. Um, and, you know, we, we exist to, to help galvanise people that want to see positive change in the world Um, and as a communications team our job is to reflect that and and show people that no matter how bleak things might seem sometimes um, there's always hope and the capacity for for humans to make change is infinite
0: and in terms of the way that you allocate resources in terms of Uh, reacting perhaps or to being strategic and, and on message and on plan? How do you manage those sort of inherent sort of conflict between those two things? Um,
1: between, sorry, between strategy and,
0: and the planning and techno, but between the strategy, strategic elements. So for example, you may have put together a plan and you've, you know, you've looked at say the next quarter or the next, next month and said, look, this, this looks about like what we've got, but then all of a sudden something jumps up and you think, "Well, (laughs) well, you know, I know it's judgment call, but how do you go about making those judgments?
1: Um, it is difficult and in, in the past, um, you know, we we probably um, could be accused of, of of having that kind of reactive element and, and going with with what the flow is. Um, the, the the key to this is how you allocate your resources. Um, so I, I would imagine a lot of organisations in, in a similar um, mode to ours need to do the same kind of thing. So you've got people whose whose job it is to to react to stuff and, and, and deal with that. Um, and you've got um, people whose job it is to to put that forward plan down, um, and within within our comms team, that probably is delineated by um, you know the media team, you know, typically you know doing that kind of PR work, are uh, by nature more reactive. And, and then you've got people who, you know, for example, are credit managers who are um, developing those longer term. Um, Campaign ideas uh, and brand ideas.
0: Mm. How how do you guard against that sense of, you know, the house is burning down every day of the week? Because obviously, within the network of Amnesty, there are always things that are happening that are particularly to local audiences. You know, meaningful, important, uh, but at the same time. Go, you know, from your point of view, looking at it from a more global perspective, perhaps it might not have the resonance and therefore, to you, not the importance of a, of a local team as such. So how do you balance that particular conflict?
1: Um, it's probably actually the, the, the opposite that we have. The, the International Secretariat, um, you know, our national offices are always keen to to point out that they're the ones on the ground um, having to react to things, so we're we're close to them, and they are, um, you know, telling us constantly what it is that they need within their markets, and and we exist to to serve that. Um, but at least within within all of that is our foundational principle at, at Amnesty. If, if you look at our logo, there's there's a candle there, um, and the idea was that it's it's from our founder, Peter Benison, that it's better to light a candle uh, than it is to curse the darkness. Um, and you know that hasn't always been there. and, and you know that um, that tussle is is taking place every day with with uh, you know the the things that we're having to respond to. And uh, making sure that we're we're on top of them and presenting them in a way that that does indeed light that candle and, and give hope that people hope to people that things can change.
0: And how important is that? Is that candle? Is that sort of essence that you've got which helps you to make decisions from that frame of reference? It must be absolutely fundamental to your decision making. Um, yes,
1: um, it, it is. And change is possible. I mean, we, we had, you know, fantastic presentation um, at our International Council meeting um, just a couple of weeks ago from, from people involved in the marriage equality campaign in, in the U.S. Um, and, you know, th- that was a brilliant example of... And they, and they showed the, 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 the transition that the, the campaign went under over the last 50 years or so from, from being a... Um, an argument of uh, you know old school equality, you could say that you know we demand this and we want this to becoming far more nuanced and smart and and um, uh, embedding itself into people's hearts um, by presenting it as an argument of family, you know that that this, you know these are modern families, these these are people who 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 love each other. Um, as as units, um, and therefore, you know, the the argument then springs from that that there, there should be equality and, and opportunity for that. So, you know, it's it's um, it, it's not just that you know people are trying to be smart and present things in different ways. These are the you know looking at these issues, whether it's refugee crisis, um, equality for um, um, for LGBT communities. Um all of these things will benefit from a smarter approach to communications than, you know, and 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 this is what probably, uh, going back to the stop the war discussion at the beginning, uh, we learned from that as well that if it's just a negative argument of stop the war, this is terrible, people are gonna die um, to something more positive of, you know, you know, we we live in peaceful, Secure societies. We want that for other parts of the world, and and to be able to present a vision for what um, you know, say the Middle East or Iraq could be, and how we get there, will be far more potent than just shouting in the dark.
0: Mm, that's a in- interesting insight. I think when people come to consider how it is that they frame the particular story that they that they want to, in order to create that engagement and that action that you're looking for if i might just re- um take you back to an, an earlier answer that you gave when we were just discussing the channels and you, off the top of your head you said you know writing letters uh staging protests approaching politicians these are all offline activities and this these are activities that are happening in the age of multimedia and you know digital first and mobile and, and other things so we uh, are, are you still uh uh, a great fan of the offline activity, of that face-to-face activity, and that it's a absolutely key and fundamental part of the mix of channels that you use to tell the Amnesty story?
1: Everything has its place. Um, I do feel that there is, particularly in our, our realm of work, that there is um, uh, a greater emphasis clearly on digital modes of, of campaigning. Um, I personally am not convinced that they've been proven to make change yet. I think they're they're good at galvanising people, they're good at educating people. Um, but that crucial next step of will it make change, um, you know, from, from my experience, you know, working in the political system, working in, in a major international newsroom, um that stuff doesn't cut through in the same way, um, but it's a, it's a great first step. Um, and for Amnesty, it's 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 a great organizer. Uh, but then, really, there needs to be a potent mix of of both the online and offline uh, in order to take things to to our ultimate objective.
0: Yeah, and is, is do you have any evidence for that, or that's just your lived experience? Um, that's constantly evolving, um, and
1: I if you've got different parts of our organisation on this call, um, you'd probably have a decent debate amongst <laughs> all of us um, on this. Um, and, you know, people would bring their, their arguments to, to support to support all of that. Uh, but, you know, the important thing is not to take, uh, and I don't think any of my colleagues would take um, either of those approaches to an extreme. I don't think you'd get anyone saying, yes, you know, we need to be totally old school um, and campaign in the way that amnesty always has, you know, because... You know, clearly everyone sees the need for us to evolve. But, you know, if, if we were a media organisation, we'd be one of the legacy organisations. We've always been offline. We started offline in, in the 1960s. Um, so we're trying to, to change, you know, we're we're in essence the, you know, the Walmart or the um, the, the CNN um, of, of um of the NGO world, um, so we're not one of the new new upstarts, but we're we're, we're good at it, uh, and we've got good people at it, um, and we, we galvanize a lot of people behind it. But I think we're we're in a strong position because you know our brand is such that politicians listen to us, the media when we when we put out uh, um, a statement or a report on something, um, we get picked up in a way that the newer, more digitally focused organizations simply don't get.
0: And so where to from here for, for Amnesty uh, and for you in terms of your planning for the future? Obviously, we're now moving into the next age of, you know, voice activation modes of delivery of content, uh, artificial intelligence, big data, smart machines, virtual reality, you know, pick your you know, favourite topic as as you sit there at the center of Amnesty International's secretariat, how do you how do you feel? First of all, as in, are you overwhelmed or are you positive? But then, once you've dealt with that emotion, what are your plans to to continue to press on as this world continues to change, almost by the day, in terms of the capability available to us? Uh,
1: look, I, I love all that, and I. I encourage um, the the team here at Amnesty to to explore all those things that, that you mentioned if they're going to take us forward. But if if I'm, if I'm brutally honest, at the moment, um, the, the main thing I'm concentrated on is is getting our story right uh, because we're, we're, we're not quite there. You know, if if you were to ask the typical human rights advocate somewhere in the world. Um, you know, to to make a case for what they believe. Um, you know, there is still a tendency to to start reciting from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, as if everybody around the world buys into it and understands it and and, and viscerally and emotionally is, is connected to it, and and they're not. And and we've got to get into a situation where we're better able to articulate um, what human rights are, what what the benefits of of them are. Um, and why people, no matter where they are in the world, should should care about them and and um, cherish them and advance them. Um, so the, the the main journey we're on right now is is getting that argument right and getting that story right,
0: um, and then
1: the way that we tell it will will follow on from there.
0: Yeah. I think that's great advice I think to anybody is that that you know if you can sharpen the spear or the tip of the spear to make sure that that you know the story that you want to tell you know finding the aspiration finding the language finding the emotion of of what it is that you're trying to to move people with is going to be just as effective because a bad story told through multiple channels uh, is not, exactly. Is, is not going to resonate with anybody. So, uh, yeah, uh, some good advice there. So, Osama mate, thank you very much for uh, for coming on to in transition and a lot of great advice there I think for people as they consider just exactly how they are going to go about telling their story and and working with their teams to go out there and make an impression and make a difference as we uh, tell those stories to engage communities and indeed improve the lives of citizens all around the world. So thank you very much to you and to the audience. Thank you very much for joining us once again and we will be back at the same time again next week. So for the moment it's Bye for now. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content communication in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.